from deep inside your audio device of choice. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, here's some not good news. Scientists in um, late June of this year did a little thing they do every year now. Predict the size of the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. It's going to be the third largest ever. Roughly the size of New Jersey. But without Chris Christie. I think. Maybe. I don't know. He's This year's dead zone should be twice the usual size. According to two oceanographers from LSU. Even during a usual... A dead zone is a large part of a body of water that that's uh, hypoxic. Thank you. Which basically means ain't no oxygen day. Even during a usual year, the dead zone in the northern Gulf is the largest in North America, the second largest in the world. That's according to environmental groups. The size peaks annually right about now. Hey, you know, go for the dead zone, stay for the food. The dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico has been monitored for the last 32 years. It, measure, it stretches from the mouth of the Mississippi into Texas. Yes, there is a dead zone in Texas. And <laughs> is created each year. The hypoxia is largely created by phosphates and other minerals in agricultural runoff and wastewater treatment that flows into the Mississippi upriver, like in the Midwest, from our friends on the farms. It creates, creates patches of water that are basically uninhabitable, except for Chris Christie. The excess nutrients in the waters flowing into the Gulf from the river stimulate an overgrowth of algae that in turn seeks, sinks into the water to, to decompose the resulting decomposition. If only they could compose, you know, then we'd have, then we'd have music that you don't need to ever pay royalty. The resulting decomposition sucks the oxygen from the water, rendering it uninhabitable for fish and other marine life. It may also slow shrimp growth, making them more shrimpy. I guess. That leads to fewer large shrimp, says the National Oce- Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, with a fine grasp of the obvious. This could mean higher costs of large shrimp. Man, they keep it up. This year's large size prediction is based mainly on the flows in, in May that carried higher than average levels of nutrients above 34% above the long-term average. 165,000 tons of nitrate, roughly 2,800 railroad cars of fertilizer, plus 22,000 metric tons of phosphorus, which we don't have a railroad car estimate for, flowed down the Mississippi and Atchafalaya rivers in May. The Atchafalaya is a um, twin, the Mississippi. If the Mississippi, many people say if the Mississippi were not... Um, encased in levees and other structures, it would have changed its course by now to be the Awachafalaya. To re- help reduce nutrient runoff, NOAA provides farmers with NOAA ri- runoff risk advisory forecasts, which suggest when to avoid applying fertilizers to croplands. That's really helped. Uh, nine years ago, Environmental advocacy groups filed a petition asking the EPA to issue standards for states along the Mississippi River. Three years later, the EPA 
denied the petition, saying that although it agrees that nutrient loads in the Mississippi and its tributaries are harming upstream water quality and contributing to the hypoxia in the Gulf, it does not believe that the comprehensive use of federal rulemaking authority is the most effective or practical means of addressing these concerns at this time. That was under the Obama administration. Isn't that nutty? Hey, on a happier note, it is the 50th anniversary of the Summer of Love, and I believe San Francisco is celebrating right about now. Uh, all nickel bags are really just a nickel. Hello, welcome to the show. From just about 400 miles south of San Francisco, from the home of the homeless, Santa Monica, California, I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. Looking now southeastward towards our freedom-loving friends in Saudi Arabia. Actually looking a little bit north of them to uh, the United Kingdom, where the government will not release a report, it's just completed, the report uh, was investigating the extent of Saudi Arabian and other foreign funding for Islamist extremism in Britain. Not going to release it. In a statement released to Parliament, Home Secretary Amber Rudd said she won't be releasing the report, which was commissioned by the former Prime Minister David Cameron on national security grounds. Quote, having taken advice... I have decided against publishing the classified report produced during the review in full. 
This is because of the volume of personal information it contains and for national security reasons, unquote. Government previously said it hoped the report could be released in some form, perhaps in Urdu. The decision comes two days after the British High Court ruled the government was the British government was not breaking the law by continuing to sell arms to Saudi Arabia, the state which is thought to be the focus of the report. Saudi Arabia, as you know, using arms from both Britain and the United States to pursue its war against the Houthi rebels in Yemen, a war that is now possibly partly responsible for what has been predicted to be a famine this summer in Yemen. In a summary, the British government said the main findings of the report were that Islamist extremist organizations are generally funded by, quote, small anonymous public donations, unquote, but that, quote, for a number of small, a small number of organizations with which there are extremism concerns, overseas funding is a significant source of income, unquote. The summary was useful enough that it didn't bother to mention which overseas countries might be involved in the funding of extremist groups in Britain. Certainly not our freedom-loving friends in Saudi Arabia. That's why the report will not be released. How many pages? Saudis don't like pages. And now, ladies and gentlemen... We've got the the frack. Well, guess what you can find in the fracking wastewater? Radioactive material. Two of our copyrighted features come together for your listening pleasure. The vast amount of wastewater produced by fracking can contaminate rivers, lakes, and other waterways with radioactive material and hormone-affecting chemicals. Those would be good. This is according to new research. We're throwing away the old research. The study tested sediments and groundwater downstream of a treatment plant in Pennsylvania. That treatment plant was designed to make the wastewater fracking fit for release into the environment. Scientists from Paterno State, uh, excuse me, Penn State University and other institutions discovered that despite the treatment process, there were high loads of chlorine, uh, sorry, chloride, barium, strontium, radium, and organic compounds in the Connemaw River. Stream sediments in Black Lick Creek that's what I said. Just downstream from one treatment plant were found to contain about 200 times the radium level upstream of the plant. Where, uh, of course, upstream didn't have the wastewater, you see. The highest concentration of radium found was just 14% below the level at which it would have to be treated as radioactive waste in some U.S. states. You know, the chicken ones. Writing in the journal Environment Science and technology, the scientists said, risks posed by the pollutants buried in the sediment and poor water of the Connemaw River Lake are difficult to assess, unquote. So drink up. Oh, no, it's not used as a source of drinking water. So wash up with some handy radium, won't you? This is, ladies and gentlemen, this is your brain on the war on drugs. It all, it continues, despite the... Uh, 
nickel bag offer in San Francisco. Don't go there, and if you do, don't wear flowers in your hair. A Central Florida man spent 90 days in jail because the police in Oviedo, Oviedo couldn't tell the difference between cocaine and drywall. Here's the difference. You don't build a house with cocaine. Well, in Mexico. In March, resident Carlos Cash, who works as a handyman, was pulled over for driving with his headlights off. An officer saw white powder on the seat and floor of his car. Cash told the officer multiple times it was drywall. He was on probation for marijuana and cocaine charges from a couple of years ago, so he was handcuffed because supposedly he was out past his court-ordered curfew. The sergeant tested the drywall. It came back positive for illegal substances. That sent Cash to jail. A few hours after the incident, police realized the system wasn't updated and he wasn't out past his curfew. Almost three months later, lab tests showed the illegal substances that had been removed from the scene were, in fact, drywall. I sat there 90 days knowing I was innocent. Cash told a TV station he was released from jail last week and immediately sniffed some drywall. But that's not all. The the, the testing thing is almost as uh, fertile an area for abuse in the war on drugs as a civil asset forfeiture. A case in point, the Houston Police Department now has ended its long-standing practice of using $2 chemical kits to make drug arrests. That policy had contributed to hundreds of wrongful convictions in recent years, according to ProPublica. Houston Police Chief Art Acevedo said the department was abandoning the use of the kits, known as chemical field tests, because conducting those tests had exposed officers to the dangers posed by potentially lethal drugs such as fentanyl. He didn't address the recent scandal that had shown the unreliable tests to often have been the only evidence used to gain guilty pleas from innocent defendants. Hundreds of wrongful convictions reported on by ProPublica and the New York Times a year ago had moved the then district attorney to require that any positive field test be confirmed in the fr- in the crime lab before a guilty plea could be won. The DEA last year warned local police that fentanyl, a synthetic opioid, is toxic in tiny doses when breathed in or exposed to skin. Field tests have been used by police departments across the country for decades. Officers simply drop a suspicious substance into a pouch of chemicals and use supposedly telltale changes in color to make arrests for coke, meth, marijuana, and other drugs. But virtually everyone in the criminal justice system, from prosecutors, judges, lab scientists to defense lawyers, knows the tests are faulty. Courts in most states, in fact, bar the tests from being used as evidence. But increasing numbers of criminal drug cases are resolved through plea bargains, Never gets to trial. District attorney in many district attorneys in many jurisdictions allow prosecutors to use the test to gain guilty pleas even without confirmation by a lab. Not a Labrador, by the way. Just clear that up right now. This is your brain on the war on drugs, and now, ladies and gentlemen, news of the war, won't you? It won an award once. I forget which one. It wasn't an SB, I know that. Rising temperatures due to global warming will make it harder 
for many aircraft around the world, as Wolf Blitzer would say, to take off in coming decades. That's according to a new study. During the hottest parts of the day, 10 to 30 percent of fully loaded planes, Tom, fully loaded planes, mm -hmm, may have to remove some fuel, cargo or passengers, or else wait for cooler hours to fly, according to this study. It's the first such global analysis, which appears in the journal Climac Climatic Change. Quote, our results suggest that weight restriction may impose a non-trivial cost on airline and impact aviation operations around the world, said the lead author. As air warms, it spreads out, its density declines, in thinner air wings generate less lift. Tom? Less lift. Mm-hmm. As a plane races along a runway, thus, depending on aircraft model, runway length, and other factors, at some point a packed plane may be unable to take off safely, if the temperature gets too high, weight must be dumped. I'd lose the food or else the flight delayed or canceled. I put the food in air quotes, but the food. Average global temperatures have gone up nearly one degree centigrade since about 1980. This may already be having an effect. In late June, American Airlines canceled more than 40 flights out of Phoenix when daytime highs of nearly 120 degrees made it too hot for smaller regional jets to take off. You could fry eggs on the planes, however which may, worldwide average temperatures are expected to go up as, more, as much as another 3 degrees by 2100. But that's only part of the story. Heat waves will probably become more prevalent, with annual maximum daily temperatures at airports worldwide projected to go up 4 to 8 degrees centigrade by nearly the end of the century. It is these heat waves that may produce the most problems. One of the co-authors says, as the world gets more connected and aviation grows, really, there may be substantial potential for cascading effects, economic and otherwise. We know that aircraft comprise about 2% of global greenhouse gas emissions. A handful of studies have warned that warming climate may increase dangerous turbulence among major air routes. Well, get, get bigger uh, seatbelts and headwinds that could lengthen travel times. Rising sea levels are already threatening to swamp some major airports, but these researchers may be the only ones so far to look at takeoffs. The new study projects effects on a wide range of jets at LaGuardia and Reagan, Phoenix and Denver, as well as 15 of the other busiest airports in the United States, Europe, the Mideast, China, and South Asia. By the way, Atlanta Hartsfield, I believe it's still called that, boasts of being the world's busiest airport. When you boast of being the place where people have to stand in line longest and wait longer for everything, you know you got a great city. The authors estimate that if global warming emissions continue unabated, fuel capacities and payload weights will have to be reduced by as much as 4% on the hottest days for some aircraft. Might have to ditch the uh, videos of the presidents of the airline bragging about their airline in front of the uh, safety video. Because those must weigh a ton. Recycling and using public transport are all fine and good if you want to reduce your carbon footprint. To truly make a difference, according to Science Magazine, have fewer children. That's a conclusion of a new study in which researchers looked at 39 peer-reviewed papers government reports, and web-based programs that assess how an individual's lifestyle choices might shrink the personal share of emissions. Washing clothes in hot water, sorry, washing clothes in cold water, 
swapping incandescent bulbs for light-emitting diodes. Those commonly promoted options have only a moderate impact. According to the team's report in environmental research letters, but four lifestyle choices have a major impact. Becoming a vegetarian, foregoing air travel, well, it'll be harder to take off anyway, ditch your car or get an electric car, unless they figure out that the electricity, well, unless the Tesla's dashboard mileage mistakes make it impossible for you to go, and have fewer children. Eating no meat cuts an individual's carbon footprint by 800 kilograms of carbon dioxide each year. That's about four times the reduction they'd get by recycling as much as possible. Foregoing one round-trip transatlantic flight each year cuts your emissions by 1,600 kilograms. Getting rid of your car reduces emissions by 2,400 kilograms, or 2.4 metric tons, whichever you like. Choosing to have one fewer child per family person trims their carbon footprint by 58.6 metric tons. That's about the same emission savings as having nearly 700 teenagers recycle as much as possible for the rest of their lives. And because they're teenagers, you know they'll do it. Despite the effectiveness of these four measures, reports Science Mag, neither the textbooks in Canadian schools nor government reports or websites in the European Union or the United States, Canada, or Australia highlight these choices because, you know, you're still supposed to be fruitful and multiply because that's, that's what the, uh, the dude who created the whole thing told you, and now it turns out to be a big joke. Wind and solar power don't pose a significant threat to the reliability of the U.S. power grid, that's the conclusion of staff members at the U.S. Department of Energy in a, in a draft report that, uh-oh, contradicts the statements by the secretary of their department. Rick, I'd like to abolish the Energy Department if I could just remember what it is. Perry, quote, the power system is more reliable today due to better planning, market discipline, and better operating rules and standards. That's according to a July draft of the study obtained by Bloomberg News. The findings, though, are still under review by the department's leadership. Uh, yeah. And that would be Rick Perry, who basically has said recently that baseload sources such as coal and nuclear power that provide constant electricity are jeopardized by Obama-era incentives for renewable energy that makes the grid unreliable. Over the last several years, Perry said last month, grid experts have addressed, expressed concern about the erosion of critical baseload resources, unquote. By baseload, they mean a source of power that's on 24 hours a day, no matter what. Two people familiar with the report who asked not to be identified because they're scared confirmed the early conclusions, though cautioned they're subject to change. It's customary for administration officials to put their own stamp on reports prepared by career staff at federal agencies. These statements are not, as written are not in the current draft, says a spokeswoman for the Energy Department. She wouldn't say they're incorrect, just that the draft is, quote, constantly evolving. Constantly evolving. That's right. Republicans are in favor of evolution only when it involves drafts 
by staff members at federal agencies. The report could be released as soon as next week. It is overdue. Perry, a couple months ago, launched the GRID study with an eye to examining whether policies that favor wind and solar energy are accelerating the retirement of coal and nuclear plants that are, in his view, critical to ensuring reliable power supplies. More and more nuclear plants, according to Bloomberg, are staying open only if their operators get state subsidies because of the impact of uh, shale gas fracking on the price of energy and the falling price of solar and wind. Oh, pardon me. News of the warm, ladies and gentlemen, copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now the latest on bees. Those damn bees. Or as they refer to us, those damn humans. In a new Canadian Canadian study, authors went into the field and they measured the levels of neonicotinoids in hives near agricultural areas. They then created a series of their own hives. I don't think they meant hives that the authors of the study lived in. I think hives for the bees. Both treated with similar levels of neonicotinoids and left untreated, untreated as controls. Those are their own hives, two sets. All animals were given a tag and put in a common hive to keep conditions as similar as possible. There was a consistent pattern of results. The neonicotinoid treatment reduced the lifespan of the bees, that's all. Well, no golf for you. Caused them to leave the hive earlier and reduced their grooming behavior. Look at your hair. You don't have any. Colonies that were treated also were less likely to replace their queen if she left in a swarm. You know those queens. But constant chronic exposure was needed to see some of these effects, which grew more severe over time. Most colonies in agricultural areas had neonicotinoids present from May until August. That's kind of chronic. That's called summer and much of spring, some of spring. The Canadian team also looked at whether insecticides were the entire problem by exposing the animals to a number of agricultural fungicides, which are often used in parallel. They found that one of the four tested, something called bascalid, enhanced the lethality of the insecticide. Well, you want your lethality enhanced if it's all possible. That's consistent with the idea that while nicotinoids aren't helpful to bees, they're only part of the problem that's leading to colony collapse. That's from Science Magazine. But we're against colonies anyway, aren't we? Let the, let the bees be free. Pour your words out Come on, I'm not coming back Draw the curtains Come on, that old sun is back My hometown has cursed me
a race to run Throw your hat in Come on, that's the starting gun My hometown has cursed me Lately From Santa Monica, this is Le Show. And look, look, ladies and gentlemen, we've gotten through an entire half of the program without mentioning the name of the chief executive of the United States of America. That's going to continue for a little while longer. I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Yes, sir. Are you listening? Yes, I am. Microplastics. Think about it. Will you think about it? Yes, I will. Enough said. Scientific sampling along the southeast Australian coast has found high concentrations of microplastics in seafloor sediments, including along even remote stretches of coastline. Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies scientists found an average of more than three plastic filaments of particles in every millimeter of marine sediment at 42 locations around New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia, and Tassie. Tasmania is a you. Locations sampled included Sydney Opera House, no, Sydney Harbour, Jervis Bay, Eden, Port Phillip Bay, close to Melbourne, Port Adelaide, and the coast south of Adelaide, Hobart, and Tasmania's east coast been to a lot of those places. I dumped some microplastics there myself. Researcher Dr. Scott Ling, who led the study, published in the journal Marine Pollution Bulletin, I read it for the pollution, said the discovery of microplastic pollution at every location showed how easily plastic is dispersed in the marine environment. Well, easy dispersal is good, right? We were surprised by both the quantity of microplastics we found in marine sediments and their wide dispersal everywhere we looked along the southeast Australian coast, he said. 
Depths between 5 and 13 meters at sites close to the major population centers is where they sampled, as well as remote sites. While we expected to find high levels of population close to the major cities, we didn't expect to find similar concentrations far from urban centers. In fact, the highest concentration, he says, of 12 microplastic filaments per milliliter of sediment was... Tom? Milliliter? Mm-hmm. Thank you. Was uh, on Tasmania's east coast. Tasmania's kind of rural, undeveloped, except for Hobart. Dr. Ling said microplastics are created by both by the pr- fragmentation of larger pieces of plastic in the ocean and by being manufactured as microbeads for use in cosmetics. Hey, your skin smells terrible. Or microfibers in clothing. Plastic filaments between uh, about a thousandth of an inch to one hundredth of an inch predominated in all the samples, sampled regions, 84% of the total. Because these filaments are often produced by household washing machines and particles are transported with litter and by industrial discharge, ooh, excuse me, we expected a stronger concentration close to population centers, but there was no such correlation, he says, due to their small size. Microplastics, you would never guess it from the name, would you, have the potential to be consumed by a very wide range of marine species and contaminate the entire food chain. Thank goodness we don't depend on that. Further research, he says, is needed to establish at what rate marine fauna are digesting these materials, the impact they're having on individuals, populations, and communities. In other studies, according to Dr. Ling, They've estimated that 70% of marine litter is expected to sink to the seafloor and enter marine sediments. The amount of plastic accumulating on the seafloor, he says, is relatively unknown. Well, nobody looks at the floor. That's where you throw things. Microplastics. Just one word. Okay. 35 minutes. That's enough. Got to say that (laughs) President Trump... Had an interesting week, dominated by news about his son, his eldest son, Don Jr. You, um, you may, as I certainly have, had your first acquaintanceship with Don Jr. when somebody published on uh, Twitter a uh, photo of Don Jr., on safari in Africa, holding a knife in one hand and the tail of an elephant in the other, elephant that supposedly he had just dispatched. I guess he was hungry. Uh, But that's not why Don Jr. is in the news this week, of course. The uh, New York Times sequentially revealed in a series of articles that there had been a meeting at Trump Tower attended by Don Jr., Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law, and Paul Manafort, the former, the, the head of the Trump presidential campaign for about three months last year, attended also by a Russian national who was a lawyer, and as we learned later in the week, attended also by a translator, a uh, representative of a Russian oligarch whose son is a pop star, made the acquaintance of Donald Trump Sr. when he held the Miss Universe contest in Moscow in 2013, and a um, an activist lobbyist 
who has opposed the current government of Kazakhstan, a former Soviet property, and also Rob Goldstone. Rob Goldstone gets the least attention in all of this. There's been a lot of stuff about the uh, female lawyer and most more recently about the uh, the Russian, uh, Russian-American. He's an American citizen, born in Russia, uh, a lobbyist, activist. Whether he is or he isn't Russian intelligence, whether he has that in his background or not, that's up for dispute. So all that's gotten a lot of attention. What hasn't gotten a lot of attention is the guy Rob Goldstone that I mentioned. He started this all. When uh, Donald Trump Jr. released the email chain that surrounded this meeting at Trump Tower last June, that was when the meeting was. He released the email chain this week after the New York Times told him they were about to. You learned, if you read them, that Rob Goldstone is the guy who sent an email to Donald Trump Jr. in the first place saying, hey, there's this Russian government lawyer who's got information, inculpating information about Hillary Clinton, incriminating information about Hillary Clinton. Uh, She'd like to meet with you. Rob Goldstone uh, 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 described her as with the Crown Prosecution Service, or uh, having had access to information gathered by the Crown Prosecution. Well, there is no Crown Prosecution Service in Russia. Russia hasn't had anybody wearing a crown since uh, Tsar Nicholas was dealt with some time ago, I believe about a century ago. Britain has a Crown Prosecution Service. Rob Goldstone was born in Britain. He was a writer for at least two British tabloids, The Sun and The Mail, whose credibility is uh, an article of faith for those with uh, reading difficulties. And more recently, he's been identified in his uh, bio as a music publicist who uh, publicized, did PR work for a lot of major artists down in Australia. I happen to know a music publicist in Australia, and I did a little bit of reporting. I asked him, you ever heard of Rob Goldstone? He said, uh, no. He was down at the harbor. Rob Goldstone did have a couple of bylines on a couple of stories about music people in Australian publications in the late 80s, when I guess they were still giving bylines to uh, publicists. But it was obviously Rob Goldstone who was purveying misinformation because by the, at least by the telling of everybody who was at the meeting so far, the Russian female lawyer did not present inculpating, incriminating evidence about Hillary Clinton. She wanted to uh, discuss her major passion in life, which is getting the um, act which penalizes Russian human rights violators sanctioned by the United States, the so-called Magnitsky Act. So Rob Goldstone was basically whether it was on his own initiative or on anybody else's initiative, conducting a three-dimensional spearfishing expedition. Spearfishing, as it's known, 
in the computer world where you're offered something and basically you're um, tantalized into something else. Donald Trump Sr., <laughs> President Trump, who was be- you know, busy, was busy being in- having an, an endless handshake in France, waited a long time to finally uh, come to his son's defense, but he was reported to have helped craft the original statement, which was not entirely forthcoming as to the nature and uh, the number of attendees at the meeting. But when he did finally come to his son's defense, it was uh, strong, robust, and in at least one case, musical. When he went to Africa on an elephant hunt, he hit a home run. My boy would never ever bunt. Got the tale to prove that he's good with a gun. To me, he was always number one son. Number one son. You know, his mom and I split when he was 12 years old. Later he told me I was distant and cold. In fact, I introduced him to a great deal of fun. Because after all, he was my number one son. Number one son. Good kid, fine boy, that's all I knew. A chip off the not-so-old block. If anyone knocked him, I'd threaten to sue. That's what a dad's supposed to do, wouldn't you? He's meeting with Russians, which was news to me. You can't spell freelance without spelling free. You can't make a hot dog without breaking a bun. Even his siblings knew he was the number one son. You know we reconciled before I started to run Just like the Charlie Chan movies He was the number one son Oh, a high quality person Second to none I barely know him They tell me he's my number one son My number one son
The apologies of the week. So sorry. Yes, I said it like it's important. Videos have surfaced of Shia LaBeouf's behavior after being arrested for public drunkenness, disorderly conduct, and obstruction in Savannah, Georgia. In the uh, videos, he tells a black police officer that he will go to hell because of his skin color. LaBeouf has released an apology saying he was ashamed of his behavior. This was shortly after the new footage was released midweek. Quote, my outright disrespect for authority is problematic to say the least and completely destructive to say the worst, he wrote. He stressed he's been struggling with addiction and he's taking new steps towards sobriety. Quote, I have been struggling with addiction publicly for too long. Well, don't do it publicly then. And I'm actively taking steps towards securing my sobriety and hope I can be forgiven for my mistakes, he said on Twitter. He was uh, being fingerprinted and making uh, the controversial statements in a video released by TMZ. Quote, you're going to hell, straight to hell, bro, he said to both cops present, and then elaborated, saying, you especially, Devin. A white cop questioned why Devin specifically, and LaBeouf said, quote, because he's a black man, unquote. He wasn't too screwed up to um, 
be able to see that. Deadline Madison, Wisconsin, a key Republican lawmaker, acknowledged this week he removed an 80-year-old man's anti-Republican sign from the state capitol rotunda without permission last month, a couple months ago actually, in an effort to uphold decorum in the building. Yes, you want decorum in your state capitol, don't you? Representative Dale Kuyenga released a police report detailing the incident, saying in a telephone interview with the AP he'd heard Democrats were trying to obtain the report and he wanted to get out ahead of them. Like Donald Trump Jr. According to the report, 80-year-old Donald Johnson told Capitol Police on May 23 his permitted sign was missing. It was worth $40. Surveillance video showed the lawmaker walking off with it. The report said the sign was very critical of President Trump, House Speaker Paul Ryan, and the GOP in general. Yenga said in the telephone interview with AP, the sign called all the Republicans gropers and said, damn all Republicans. He said he took the sign as a joke and because it contained the words groper and damn and children, the children in the Capitol saw it. I'm sorry I took the sign without permission, said Koyenga. However, I am not sorry for trying to uphold appropriate decorum in our state capitol, unquote. Speaking of decorum, a week after Rob Kardashian's social media tirade against ex-fiancee Black China, you remember that, don't you? Please tell me you don't. He has apologized to his family and now admits their relationship was a terrible idea. He did apologize, finally, the source says, of the 30-year-old. Really? He acts younger. Who's been ordered by a judge to stay at least 100 feet away from his ex. Rob is very stubborn, the source tells People magazine. It took him forever to admit it was a terrible idea to get involved with China. He's finally admitting it now and feels very bad. Kardashian's meltdown in which he shared repeatedly graphic and expletive-ridden content about China while accusing her of drug use, alcohol abuse, and infidelity was instigated by the fact his ex was involved with other men. He got overheated. It was a spontaneous reaction of anger, says the source. This is not the person he wants to be. I hope he doesn't want to be a Kardashian. A Maine state lawmaker is apologizing after he suggested in a Facebook post he would harm President Trump if he had the chance. Democratic Maine state, uh, state Representative Scott Heyman wrote in a long Facebook post that, quote, Trump is a half-term president at most, especially if I ever get within 10 feet of that P dot 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 Y. He apologized for the apparent threat in a statement the next day, saying... He made the, quote, aggressively sarcastic, unquote, comments in exchange with a childhood friend. What do we tell the children about childhood friends? Quote, this is not language I typically use. It does not reflect my personal values. This is not who I am. He didn't say that, but he should have. Can we all say it together? This is not who I am. I don't know who this is. And I, I wish he'd take it back. Quote, and while misguided, it was intended to make a visceral point about the devolving political discourse in America, unquote, Heyman. It's a crime to threaten the president, but the Secret Service didn't comment. Candace Jackson, acting assistant secretary for civil rights at the U.S. Department of Education, has apologized for telling the New York Times in an article published earlier that day that 90 percent of accusations of sexual assault on college campuses stem from an accuser's regret over a sexual encounter. As a survivor of rape myself, I would never seek to diminish anyone's experience. My words in the New York Times poorly characterized the conversations I've had with countless groups of advocates. What I said was flippant, and I am sorry. All sexual harassment and sexual assault must be taken seriously, which has always been my position and will always be the position of this department. Unquote. <laughs> 
I don't think she thinks that's who she is. Dayline Berlin, the mayor of Hamburg, Olaf Scholz, apologized to his city's residents this week over violence that marred the G20 summit. About 20,000 police struggled to contain several hundred anti-capitalist militants who torched cars, looted shops, and hurled Molotov cocktails and stones during the summit. Tens of thousands more people demonstrated peacefully, but you didn't hear about them. Schultz, a senior Democrat who had been seen as a potential future party leader before the thing, said it was not possible to ensure security everywhere in the city at all times during the summit, adding, for what happened, I apologize to the people of Hamburg. They are, of course, hamburgers. They are. No, really. Akbar al-Bakkar, the chief executive of Qatar Airlines, has apologized for calling U.S. flight attendants, quote, grandmothers. While giving a speech in Ireland last week, the executive boasted that the average age of Qatar Airways cabin crew is 26, while passengers on U.S. airlines are, quote, always being served by grandmothers, unquote. He also added that U.S. airlines are crap. Well, batting 500 is good in baseball. But this week he walked back his statements, calling them careless. President Trump's outside attorney, Mark Kasowitz, is going to apologize to a man he told in a profanity-faced email to watch his back, according to his spokesman. He's tied up with client matters, but he tends to apologize to the writer of the email referenced in a ProPublica story, said his spokesperson, Mike Citrick. While no excuse, the email came at the end of a very long day. Kasowitz was exchanging emails with a retired public relations professional, the person sending that email is entitled to his opinion, and I should not have responded in the inappropriate manner, he said in the statement provided by his spokesperson. Person? 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 I intend to send him an email stating just that. This is one of those times where one wishes one could reverse the clock, but of course I can't. His reply to uh, that person, who had encouraged Kasowitz to resign as Trump's counsel, started with, F you! And you don't know me, but I will know you. How dare you send me an email like that? I'm on you now. You are effing with me now. Let's see who you are. Watch your back, bitch. And a new feature, the United Airlines Apology of the Week. United Airlines accidentally flew rapper Schoolboy Q's dog to the wrong city during a layover. He expressed his dismay and anger toward the airline on Twitter. Schoolboy Q, his real name is Quincy Matthew Hanley. (laughs) During a layover in Denver on his flight from Missouri to Burbank, the airline mistakenly switched his dog with another, the old switcheroo. I plan on suing, he added. United says the dog is being well cared for. I guess they're in the uh, headquarters of another airline. We're working as quickly as possible to reunite the pet with their owner later this evening. We've reached out to our customer and sincerely apologize for this mistake and are providing a refund. United Airlines Apology of the Week, ladies and gentlemen. Japan TV's public broadcaster NHK apologized over a cartoon with Adolf Hitler's face that was printed on a T-shirt worn by a talk show guest. An Oak Ridge, Tennessee company has admitted it did not test devices shipped from Tennessee to two other states to meet federal requirements for radioactive containers. Cesium-137, specifically, the company Berthold Technologies USA has apologized. And David Wildstein, who orchestrated Bridgegate and then cooperated with federal prosecutors to help convict two members of Governor Christie's inner circle in New Jersey, will not spend any time in prison. But he did apologize this week. I willingly drank the Kool-Aid of a man I knew since I was 15, he said. I guess he's referring to the lycamade that was drunk at Jonestown. The apologies of the week and a fact correction. 
Copyrighted features of this program. This just in, everybody who attends the 50th anniversary celebration of the Summer of Love this weekend gets free drywall. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time with the same stations over NPR worldwide throughout Europe, the USN 440 cable system in Japan, around the world through the facilities of the American Forces Network, up and down the east coast of North America via the shortwave giant WBCQ, the planet, on the Mighty 104 in Berlin, on the mighty, mighty... Soho Radio in London, available for your smartphone through Stitcher.com, available as a free podcast from Sideshow Network, SoundCloud, TuneIn.com, iTunes, and WWNO.org. Available around the world via the Internet at two different locations, live and archived whenever you want at HarryShare.com and KCSN.org. And it would be just like getting free drywall for life if you agree to join with me then. Would you already? Thank you very much. Uh-huh. Tip of the show, chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, Nags on Hawaii desks. Thanks as always to Pam Halstead and to Jenny Lawson at WWN on New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. And I'm on the Twitter at the Harry Shearer. Email me at harryshearer.com. Find out the music on the playlist, too. Get some Cars I Talk t-shirts while you're at it. The show comes to you from Sensory of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWN on New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from the home of the homeless.